we will now read from God's Word. And we have two readings. And the first is from Isaiah chapter 8, from verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of its burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Priests. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And now our second reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was spoken of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Roger Day will now come and read us in God's word. Amen. Um, and I don't know what you made of those readings. Uh, or even of the song we sang. I mean, Psalm 2, it, it doesn't pull any punches in terms of content. It's some sober stuff. And one of my hopes and aims for, the, for our next short time together is that, that we would see there is good news in the Bible. Good news on offer at Christmas. That this whole Advent series uh, uh, um, 
uh, time frame it is full of good news. Um, so let me uh, lead us in prayer to that end, and then we'll turn to God's word again. Our Father in heaven, we pray you would shine your light into our hearts. We pray your good news, the real light of the world, would shine in this place now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've almost made it to the end of the year. December 15th, here we are, getting to the end of uh, 2019. I think it's fair to say it's been a fairly gloomy ride. I don't know if you would resonate with that. I don't particularly mean on a kind of personal level or a family level, because actually lots of families have celebrated real joy. I mean, this morning, real joy. Um, Elsa's uh, arrival and the promises of God, what a great celebration. And there are others um, in the church family at the moment who are celebrating wonderful news. Of course, there are others for whom Christmas is going to be a a difficult time, a lonely time, a time of, of grief, bereavement remembering who's not there. So I don't particularly mean 2019's been gloomy on a personal level, because it varies. A church family is always a mixture of joys and sorrows, and we bear them together. I mean at a kind of national level, a national, even international level, a political level. I think this has been a gloomy year. Politics is the kind of place we're in. If you are on page 573, um, just have a look. It's this great Um, promise of a child being born, but just have a look at verse 6 of chapter 9. This child, the government shall be upon his shoulder, or verse 7, of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. We're talking about government this morning, Uh, timely, given we've just elected a new one. And we're also talking about kind of light in the darkness, again, timely, I think there has been a lot of political gloom, not, not just we've been paralysed for kind of three years, but I think across this year in particular, politics has just become polemical and partisan. It's become a fight, just conflict. And perhaps the large majority for the Conservatives means maybe the, the deadlock will be broken at Westminster. But of course we're up here, large minor, majority for the SNP. So there's another fight ready to come, loggerheads, divided loyalties, whether it's Brexit or Scottish independence, right through families and communities and our nation, divided loyalties, conflict still to come. And if you look internationally, well, it's not been much of a a kind of better year on that front, has it? Um, Across the pond, our closest kind of friends democratically are impeaching their president currently. NATO, that kind of great bastion of security and partnership, it's weakening, it's under strain. The aggression of a number of states around the world is growing. We've just had another terrorist attack occur on UK soil. It's not been the best of years. I think it can feel a bit like we've kind of been stuck in this long, dark tunnel. We're just longing for the light to appear at the end. But actually... On a global scale, we have things relatively good in this country. If you were one of those people who struggled to know how to use your vote, actually, it's extraordinary we have a vote. It's a sign of the security and stability, the freedom we enjoy. For many populations around the world, they come to an end of oppression, civil war, tribal conflicts, desperate migration attempts, because it's so bad where they are. 
2019 has actually been far harder and darker than we know here for many people around the world. At which point, the Christmas season, the kind of Advent candles and the tinsel and the twinkly lights, the jingle bells, the feasts of food, well, it it can all seem a bit empty, I think. Peace on earth, sing the carols. Is that just empty sentimentality? Is it just a kind of attempt to just whip up some kind of celebratory warm feeling inside? Just distracting us from the horror of the world that's actually out there. Is it religion doing its bit as the opium of the masses? Well, I can't speak for religion, but this morning we're going to see that the birth of Jesus Christ gives genuine hope, genuine hope, genuine light, actual, factual, historical reason to hope in this dark world. One of the interesting things watching the general election campaigns was I think all parties recognized we need some hope. They're all promising stuff, whether it was the kind of real change of Labour or Boris's we are going to get Brexit done. We've all been promised this kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Keep being told that a new leader or a new government will bring this new hope. The difficult thing is to know whether you can trust it. (coughs) Is it actually true? Clearly, people didn't trust that Jeremy Corbyn would be able to pay for all those benefits he promised. But how much do we trust a different government? Boris will be able to do it. How is he going to cut tax and resource the NHS? How is he going to get a quick deal with the EU? How will he unite the UK? There's often this nagging fear about human politics that it's just not quite as bright as they're saying. That the, the kind of that 2020 isn't going to bring a brave new dawn It's going to be more like those, you know, those battery-powered Christmas lights? They kind of flicker, and then they begin to tail off and fade pretty quickly. Don't make it into January, really. Isaiah 9 is different. When Isaiah 9 says, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That is not battery-powered Christmas twinkle. It is a genuine hope, genuine light at the end of the tunnel. The kind of words you can build a life upon. When Robin said, the most important thing will be Elsa hearing of Jesus, putting her trust in him. Is that just religious fluff? Or are those the, is he the, the person you can build your life upon? Well, let's dive in, because I'm sure it's the latter. You'll see there's three points we're going to look at. The first point is that there is some genuinely good news in a genuinely dark world. This is verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9. Um, The good news is there. We've seen it, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And verse 3 speaks about this extraordinary joy. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy as at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. You may not know, if you don't have children at the ages of three and four, like I do, you may not know it's the sparklers Christmas party today. So if, if a kind of raucous sound comes out of the windows up there, that's because they're, they are partying. And that's the image of verse three. It is a, a party, a joyful celebration. Rejoice as with joy at the harvest. 
It's a beautiful picture of hope. You may know this passage from carol services or uh, readings on the radio. It's beautiful, it's poetic. What lots of people don't realise is this message was given at a time of massive national darkness and international instability. That's why I got Angus to read the bit just before, the bit that usually doesn't get read at the end of chapter 8. You see, Isaiah was speaking, this is hundreds of years before Jesus came, he was speaking at a time where his nation were facing a crisis far worse than Brexit. He's speaking to a people who are facing invasion. At first, it's from Syria who are threatening their northern border. And then later, it will be Assyria, a superpower, coming crashing through them right the way to Jerusalem. So in other ways, under words, let's not make the mistake of thinking that when the Bible speaks like it does in chapter 9, it's kind of a million miles away from real life, from the gritty reality of international politics, of conflicts, of civil war. Or, or to put it simply, don't mistake school nativities for the actual message of the Bible. Isaiah is well aware how dark and scary the world can be. He knows the headlines. And yet he knew that those... Uh, international geopolitics, the the kind of mess we make on an international scale, the mess we make on a global scale, even sometimes the mess we make on a family scale, well, that is a symptom of a deeper problem. There's actually an even deeper darkness than humanity's relationship with humanity. The deeper darkness of their deteriorating relationship with God. So let me set the scene of what's going on. Um, In chapter 7, Isaiah had just challenged King Ahaz, who's the king of God's people at the time. He challenged King Ahaz to trust God through this latest crisis, to trust God to rescue Jerusalem and Judah from these threats from Syria and Ephraim to the north. But King Ahaz panicked. He didn't think trusting God was a kind of sensible strategy for life. Uh, So he turns instead to military alliances. Um, He'd rather trust idols and and their armies than the living God of the Bible. And so that bit we read at the end of chapter 8 is God promising that things are going to deteriorate further. That is, the darkness they're in is going to get darker. It's actually going to be a spiritual, not just a geopolitical crisis. Let me just read through and listen to how desperate things become. Chapter 8, verse uh, 17. I'll start there. This is Isaiah speaking. He and his children and a few others are still believing, but, but the nation are not. Verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I'll hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. I look to the earth, but behold, distress and anguish. The gloom of anguish, they'll be thrust into thick darkness. It's a picture that things have got seriously dark. Not just there's war and invasion looming. Not just there's a failure of domestic leadership, that the country is in paralysis. But the worst thing for Isaiah is that people will turn anywhere 
except the God of the Bible. They'll even try and kind of contact the dead world through, through spirit, spirit, um, spiritism. Now, Isaiah's not writing in a different world to us. Yes, it's a different time. Yes, it's a more serious crisis than we're in. But actually, the same patterns are there. The thought that the last place people would turn would be to the God of the Bible. Now, we're not as bad as a situation as they were in. We're not about to be conquered. But no doubt, already in our society, the most vulnerable are facing the consequences of injustice and inequality. There is a massive decline of the church in our country. There's a real kind of um, uh, confusion spiritually as people tend to all sorts of different solutions. And in all of that backdrop of darkness, as the Bible sees it, God promises light, genuinely good news. It's against that that verse 1 breaks in and says there's going to be no gloom for those who are in anguish. Or verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. See, Isaiah does not pretend the world is rosy, but he provides genuine good news, genuine hope in a genuinely dark world. What is the good news? So we've seen the party in verse 3. Uh, what about uh, where that, what causes that party? Well, verse 4. Verse 4 explains the oppression and the warfare that these people in Israel have been facing. The fear they've been living in day by day will be over. And actually, the, the good news is so big, it, it won't stop at their borders, verse 4. Instead, verse 5 Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. It's an absolutely extraordinary picture. It's saying the clothes for war won't be needed anymore. And if the clothes aren't needed, well, the weapons certainly can go. The equipment, whether it's the nukes, the napalm, the tanks, the Kalashnikovs, the jackboots, the helmets, the IEDs, they can all be piled up burnt in a bonfire. It is a picture of peace, peace on earth. I mean, no wonder they're rejoicing. Just, just imagine a world like that. I know it's not easy, but imagine a world like that. There's never a headline about conflicts. I watched a film recently that, that follows along a, an army disposal, a bomb disposal unit in Iraq. Um, I don't actually normally watch war films. I, I find them too harrowing. And however kind of tastefully they're done, just, just being immersed in the reality of war is a horrible thing. Anyway, this one I saw. And as usual, the consequences, both for those fighting and those affected by the conflict, are awful. But verse 5, this passage says, One day there will be no more news of death in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. There'll be no more budget needed for defence in our country. That actually would solve the NHS crisis. And humanity have never got close to this. I mean, pick your ideology, whether it's humanism, Marxism, atheism, socialism, nationalism, or currently our creaking capitalism. We've never got close to a permanently stable world. If anything, actually, the, the strongest of human ideologies seems to trigger more conflict. 
So how on earth can the Bible promise this? Well, verse 6 gives us the reason. There's another 4, verse 6, 4. And notice, fundamentally, the hope that Christians have is not an idea or a philosophy or a way of life, but a person, verse 6. For to us a child is born. Isaiah says there's hope because a baby is on its way. Jesus Christ is coming. Who is this baby? Well, the baby will be a ruler. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. Now he's clearly an amazing baby. He would have to be to, to kind of establish lasting global peace. Um, I think one, one of, maybe one of the, I don't know about you, one of the reasons we've, we've kind of struggled to really have confidence in the promises we're hearing through the election is thinking, what leader could disentangle this mess? What leader could put all this back together? What kind of wisdom and power would you need to put it all back together to achieve the kind of peace that verse 5 is talking about? Well, quite simply, you'd need the mind of God. You'd, You'd need the infinite power of the Creator to stop evil in its tracks. But that is exactly what this baby has. This is our second point. There's some genuinely good news in a genuinely dark world. That was point one. Here's our second point. Through an amazing baby, a genuinely human, genuinely divine ruler. Have a look with me at verse six. Why do I say he's genuinely human? Well, because just like Elsa, he has a birthday. He was actually born. Doesn't get much more human than that. He's a human ruler. And verse 7, we'll we'll get to this. He's a descendant of David. He's sitting on the throne of David. He's genuinely human. Why do I say genuinely divine? Because of the names he's given. Just look at those names at the end of verse 6. They're not your typical names. If you are thinking of what to call a baby, I wouldn't go for these ones. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, just imagine that at the nursery register. He's wonderful counsellor. That's talking about just astounding wisdom, not kind of regular level wisdom. And unlike the bewildered think tanks or politicians, this leader genuinely knows what's best for the future. He can genuinely read the human heart. He sees right through us. There's no kind of guesswork. He's mighty God. That means unlike lots of visionaries who have great ideas but no power to make them happen, well, this baby has all the means he needs to achieve this. He can genuinely stop warmongers. He can make things happen, get things done. He's everlasting father. That means he deeply cares for people and he is always there, always loving as a father. He's prince of peace. Unlike so many strong rulers, his rule's not going to trigger more fights, but permanently end them. Isaiah says there's a baby coming, a human baby with divine attributes. A divine human king will be born, a ruler who will bring world peace. So what this is saying, and if you're skeptical about Christianity, just just tune into this for a moment. What this is saying is that 700 years before Jesus came, there was already a promise that there'd be a divine human king one of the things Jesus' closest followers who who kind of watched him for three years said about him. We know he's a man, but he must be God. 
it's pretty extraordinary, hard to get your head around, but God gave us 700 years warning to warm us up to the idea. It is such a big claim that um, scholars will try and, try and find a way to say it can't possibly be saying that. It can't be saying that, can it? Here are a few of them. Um, none of them persuasive, I don't think. One, one suggestion is maybe this is just kind of exaggeration. Maybe it's just flattery. Maybe they were kind of having a, 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 a kind of ceremony for the new king, you know, long live the king. And they just got carried away. They were kind of, hail the new king, and by the way, he's mighty God and everlasting father and ex- extraordinary wisdom. Sometimes the, the evidence used is that uh, Egyptians um, often gave their rulers huge throne names, like divine-sounding names when they went to the throne. Um, and the Egyptians did do that because they believed their kings were God. But Israel was very clear, there's one God. It didn't happen in Israel, which makes this language all the more astonishing. Their names you would only call the living creator gods. Mighty God is a name used of God a chapter later, unmistakably. In fact, the names are so clearly about God that there's another book on my shelf um, which tries a completely different way of wriggling out. It it, it says... um, Okay, yeah, they're clearly names for God, but they can't be describing the baby. Maybe they're describing the God who the baby will work for. You know, the, 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 kind of, the king represents God, and so all those bits are, are talking about God. But just look at verse 6 again. See if you can spot where the subject might change. Verse 6. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hard to see where we've shifted away from the baby king. Which is to say, when Isaiah says light will break into this dark world, God's not going to do it by a postcard or a prophet, but by a divine human king. The Lord Jesus will come. That fits what's going on just a chapter, uh, two chapters before in chapter 7. We have the promise of Emmanuel, 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now originally, actually, that chapter 7 promise was about a baby being born at the time. But once you read chapter 9, well, you know that that mini version of God with us is going to be fully fulfilled when the virgin has another child, an actual virgin, an actual divine child, the chapter 9 baby. God not just with us in spirit, but literally with us in the flesh, a divine human ruler. That's where all our carols get their ideas from. When you hear the carols sung this Christmas, listen out for these ideas. (coughs) What's the effect of this baby coming? Well, this is point three. Just look at verse 7 for genuine global everlasting peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Again, it's an extraordinary statement. Adding a baby to the mix is not normally a kind of recipe for peace. Um, I know that from when Josh arrived in our family. Um, Apparently Elsa was up at 3 a.m. last night. Um, But this child, when he grows up, 
is actually going to bring peace to the world. Again, we, we might think, how on earth is that going to happen? How's one baby going to end centuries of bloodshed and war? After all, the 20th century, it did open with kind of hopes that things are getting better, humanity's improving, technology's improving, we've come of age. But the 20th century closed, according to one historian, with 83 million dead by genocide or tyranny, 60 million dead through war. So to that common view that humanity is getting better and better, it sounds from the factual data like we're getting better and better at killing each other. Isaiah says one day, one baby will end all of that. Extraordinary. It's an absolutely extraordinary claim, but of course it's an absolutely extraordinary child. Now, of course, it sounds lovely. Who wouldn't want peace on earth? But how do we know it's not fake? Like the other election promises where we're not sure will it really happen. I'm sure people thought that when Isaiah said it in 740 BC. Come on, Isaiah. Get with the program. Put down your Bible and pick up a newspaper. This is not the real world you're talking about. But here's the thing, it's harder to argue this is fake news when the baby has actually come. This is the great, solid hope of a Christian. We've actually seen Jesus Christ be born, the human, divine ruler. Isaiah 9 verse 1 tells us where, the ba- where, where this, um, this ruler will be, where the light will dawn. Galilee, this kind of provincial backwater, will be honoured. And it turns out Galilee is where Jesus' family stayed. And that's what Matthew 4, that second reading we had, spoke about. Capernaum, this town he was living in, um, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, precisely where Isaiah said the light would dawn. That's where Jesus starts his ministry. Isaiah 9 verse 7 tells us that he'll rule on the throne of David. That is, he'll be born into the family tree of King David, the line of promise. And so he was born in Bethlehem. David's town, um, to the line of David's. Isaiah 9 verse 6 tells us uh, the baby will be given these, these divine names. And as Jesus' followers watched him closely, as they watched him teach with unparalleled wisdom, if you've been here for our Mark 1 and 2 series, you've heard that, unparalleled wisdom. Or they saw him calm storms and heal the sick, the kind of stuff that only mighty God could do. They came to realize that there was no other rational conclusion to draw than this was God himself standing in front of their eyes. See, it's not fake news because it was predicted beforehand and then proven in public. Lots of witnesses, even rising from the dead. If you're not familiar with that, there are four accounts of Jesus' life. It would be great just to read one as an adult if you haven't done that. Check out the description for yourself. But just before we close, and we are coming to a close, I just want to address one objection. I wonder if it's been building in your mind all the way through what I've been saying. The, the kind of biggest ad- objection to, to this message from Isaiah 9 might be that if this divine baby was supposed to bring peace on earth, and if you're saying he's come, well, where's the peace? I thought you said the last century was worse than any others when it comes to conflicts. 
if the divine human baby came with all the wisdom and all the firepower to bring justice and peace, well, he clearly didn't succeed on his mission. That's a really good question. And the answer to it is the heart of the Advent season, this time we're in, as we look forward to Jesus coming and celebrate that. Please tune in for the next couple of minutes. They're the most important thing I'm going to say. Remember how I said at the start that Isaiah realized the darkness his nation were facing wasn't just the warfare of other nations oppressing them. That was a symptom of an even deeper problem that fundamentally things weren't right with God. We war with others because we're at war with God. If that sounds ridiculous, it goes like this. Each of us decide, I'm the boss. I should call the shot. I'm the king of my universe. We reject the idea that God should be king of all of our universes, his universe. So we put ourselves on the throne. But here's the thing. If you put yourself on the throne and someone else puts themselves on the throne, inevitably conflict comes when you try and live in the same world. Whether it's armed conflict or just verbal conflict, whether it's global <laughs> conflict or just familial conflict, conflict between spouses and colleagues, factions, tribes, and nations, we fight each other fundamentally because we're fighting God. Now, Jesus Christ made it clear there will be a day when he puts a stop to that, when he says, enough. In fact, Psalm 2, some of those sobering words we sang from Psalm 2, that is a promise and a warning that one day God will say, enough is enough. He'll end the bloodshed, end the conflict, end the evil. When Jesus first came, lots of his followers hoped that was what he was going to do. That he was going to come with firepower and might to kick out the Romans, to judge the oppressors, to get rid of all evil and causes of conflict. But of course, then he would have had to eradicate Everyone. I wonder if you'd agree with that. That if God were to remove all causes of conflict from this world, he'd have to remove us. That's what Jesus said. He said the first time he came, he didn't come as a judge, but as a doctor, as a rescuer, to save sinners to provide the forgiveness we need. You see, he first came to provide peace with God before he brings justice and peace on the globe. And so before that great day of reckoning, that removal of all causes of conflict, Jesus holds out his hands and offers us forgiveness. Interesting, even that is in the book of Isaiah. Um, we won't go through it now, don't worry, it would take too long. But, but basically, the end of the book ends with this picture of, of the, the Davidic king, this, this divine human king, coming as a conqueror to do justice on the earth. But before that ending, this king will come as a suffering servant. So he will come to wipe out the guilty. He comes first to take guilt on himself, to offer peace. For him to be crushed, for our transgressions, as Isaiah 53 puts it. Which is why Christmas is the most amazing good news. It's genuinely good news 
Matthew 4 that we read that picks up this dawning of the great light records these words from Jesus. Turn around for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around because now is the chance to be forgiven. He offers peace with God before he brings global peace on all nations. So if you're a Christian, that's what Advent's about. As we, as we look forward to the day when Jesus came the first time, well, that gives us solid confidence for the second time Jesus will come. Christians live between the two comings of Jesus. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember his death until he comes again. And his first coming gives us great confidence for his second But if you're not a Christian here yet, actually the same is true. We are living in a world between the first coming of this ruler and the second coming of this ruler. And in his love and kindness, God holds out his hands and says, peace is on offer. Justice will come, but our own record can be justly dealt with. He can make peace with God for us. That's why Christmas is really good news. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that this is a world you have not given up on, despite the darkness we see in our headlines. And even if we're honest, we see in our hearts that we live in a world of conflict and we contribute to it. We thank you so much that you have a solution for the government of this world, that you have promised good government. And we thank you so much that in your kindness you have provided a way for us to be at peace with you and at peace with each other. And we pray for any here who don't yet know that peace, that you would work in their hearts. And we pray for all of us, that we would keep confident in the return of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.